let's start. So, uh, so here's the thing. We say, okay, people say, well, this claims to be the word of God. It is the word of God. I believe it's the word of God. But might there be some mistakes in it? Might there be some little errors in it? Um, and that's the question of the inerrancy of scripture. And this, this word inerrancy has been um, a major, major focus of debate over the last 30 years among evangelical scholars, particularly in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, perhaps into the 1980s, it was, was quite a large debate. It was, it was made to be a very explosive debate by um, a book by a man who was the editor of Christianity Today named Harold Linzel. He wrote a book called The Battle for the Bible, and it had a bright red cover on it, and it was uh, an alarm. And what he did was he, he went through various seminaries and various denominations and said to people, well, you may not know it, but the professors at your seminaries, when they get students in their classes, they teach them that there are some mistakes in the Bible and they can't trust it all. But it doesn't matter because they're just little mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> but he said they are denying inerrancy. And so that's the question. Um, in uh, 1948, I believe, um, there was a group of conservative Bible scholars who met together and formed something called the Evangelical Theological Society. I think there were maybe a dozen of them or so who, uh, who started it. Now it's up to over 3,500 members. But uh, for many years, the only... The only thing you had to believe to be a member was inerrancy. And they decided this would separate them from the liberal people who didn't believe the Bible who were teaching in other seminaries. And so the statement of faith for the ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society, all it said was the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is the word of God written and therefore inerrant in the autographs. Autographs. What's that mean? We'll talk about that. It means the original copies. It's inerrant in the original copy. And so if you believed that, you could join the ETS. And if you didn't believe it, you were out. And that really served as a good gatekeeper for a number of years. Eventually, we had some people that didn't believe in the Trinity um, that joined. And uh, so we added a, a statement uh, called um, a statement about the Trinity as well. But that's all that the statement has now, even today. And uh, a few years ago, we had the dispute to try to force some people out of membership of the ETS, and it was whether they believed in inerrancy or not. That was the question. When, over the course of, I don't know how many years of teaching, 24, 28, 28, 29 years, when I've, hired, I've interviewed, I don't know, dozens and dozens of people, been part of an interview committee to teach at a seminary, or in some cases I've been on a search committee for an associate pastor or something like that in a, in a um, search committee, one of the questions I'll always ask is, do you believe in the inerrancy of scripture? Um, do you believe it's totally truthful in all it affirms? Because it tends to be a dividing line that sorts out people's attitude toward the Bible. So what I want to do this week, and it'll go on into next week, is define more clearly what inerrancy means. We might kind of sit back and dream up some views of inerrancy, we might think, well, if the Bible is perfect, it doesn't have any spelling mistakes. You might say that. Or it doesn't have any strange grammar in it or anything. We might just say that. Or you might say, like the Muslims say, like about the Quran, uh, 
it can't even be translated, it's so perfect. <laughs> if you really want to understand it, you have to learn Arabic and read it in Arabic. But in fact, uh, that isn't what we say when we talk about inerrancy. When we talk about inerrancy, I'm going to tell you in a few minutes, but I'll get to the bottom line right now. We're talking about the truthfulness of all that it says, that whatever it affirms is truthful. And um, so let's, let's go on and talk about that in more detail. Are there any errors in the Bible? The meaning of inerrancy. Um, the inerrancy of scripture means that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. We'll get to this talk about the original manuscripts in a few minutes. Contrary to fact, it doesn't affirm anything that is contrary to fact. That is, when it affirms something, then that is true. Now, now, uh, Tom, where's Tom? Tom sent me an interesting note uh, just this last week. He said, well, doesn't it quote some false things? Yes, it does. It, it quotes some statements of kings who were, made some mistakes. Or uh, another, uh, um, another example, did you know the Bible says there is no God? Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. <laughs> well, the Bible doesn't really say there is no God. It says those words, but when you see it in the context, what it affirms is that the fool says that. So it quotes some false statements of people, but then it shows you that those are false. So that's not what we mean. We mean when it affirms something. It doesn't affirm anything that is contrary to fact. The, okay, Psalm 12:6. the words of the Lord are pure words. We talked about the, this last time. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Uh, these words are, um, are perfect, and, and they're the way the Lord wanted them. There's no impurity in them. Every word of God proves true, Proverbs 30, verse 5. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. And so these words, and we could go back to last week, there are other verses that affirm the truthfulness of the Bible. This definition does not mean, does not mean that the Bible tells us every fact there is to know about any one subject but it affirms that what it does say about any subject is true. Now, people will say to me, well, this is not a science textbook. Yeah, you know, I already figured that out. I didn't really read it to learn high school biology. It's not a science textbook. Okay, but does it say anything about science? Does it say anything about creation? Does it say anything about weather? Does it say anything about astronomy? Well, there are some examples. Um, for instance, uh, it talks about some constellations. Amos 5.8, he who made the Pleiades and Orion, those are constellations in the stars, and turns deep darkness into the, into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord, not in Arizona, but other places. <laughs> the Lord is his name. Um, it says that God does that. He, he, uh, he controls the weather. You have to believe that he controls the weather. It doesn't tell you everything about weather, but it says that God controls it. Uh, it doesn't tell you everything about the stars, but it says God made them. He made the Pleiades and Orion. Put those constellations in place. And here, Hebrews 11.3, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are, that are visible. That is, uh, it... it um, um, God just didn't take pre-existing matter and form it and shape it. Uh, he actually created it out of nothing. So the universe was created by the word of God. Now, you, that doesn't tell you everything about the date of creation and how it came about and the time it took and all that, but it says that God made it. And so I think we have to affirm that, that the universe hasn't existed forever. So when it does talk about a, a subject, it has to speak truthfully. 
okay? And then the Bible can be inerrant and then and still speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech. Now this is important. The authors of the Bible are, are they're ordinary people whose lives God touched. David is a shepherd out in the fields. Um, uh, Amos was a herdsman. Um, uh, uh, Matthew was a tax collector. Uh, so just a number of uh, different, uh, Peter was a fisherman. These are ordinary people. And, and, and God doesn't um, override their manner of speech, their personalities. He uses their own personalities and speaks through them. And so that means that we have ordinary language of everyday speech. The Bible can speak of the sun rising and the rain falling because from the perspective of the speaker, this is exactly what happens. So, you know, people can, can uh, take a verse like James 1.11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Now this is talking about Arizona. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The sun rises, and they'll say, oh, well, how hopeless. It's talking about the sun rising. It's just got this ancient view of the universe that it's a flat earth, and the sun comes up, and it goes down, and it comes up, and it goes down. And, uh, and uh, they'll say, well, this is just, uh, this is, doesn't understand modern astronomy, uh, that the sun really doesn't rise. The earth rotates. See, and then, then, then the earth rotates, and you can see different uh, see the sun from different parts of the world. Well, my answer to that is, this is not trying to speak from some abstract fixed point out in the universe. I mean, as if there were such a place, and where would you stand? I don't know. What it's doing is it is saying, as I, as I watch from the perspective of the speaker, the sun rises. In fact, that's true. I, it, it, it come, which way is east? It just, it, 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 you just stand here, and, and we can talk about sunrise today. That's ordinary language. It's not trying to say that the earth doesn't rotate or does rotate. It's just saying, from the perspective of human beings, the sun rises. And that's a true statement. It's ordinary language, however. I never did get a whiteboard. What did we? Do I have a marker board here? No. Some, maybe next week we'll get it. I don't know. I won't draw any pictures this week. <laughs> okay. Uh, inerrancy has to do with truthfulness, not with the degree of precision with which events are reported. Now, here's another question. I could say to you, oh, here we go. Man, that was instant. Okay. Um, I could say to you, I live uh, seven miles from Scottsdale Bible Church. Okay, good. Thanks, Bob. I think that's great. Okay, good. good. Okay. Um, is that a true statement? I live seven miles from Scottsdale Bible Church? Uh, actually, I'll tell you, it is. Um, well, I looked it up on MapQuest last night. <laughs> And it says, I live 7.16 miles from Scottsdale Bible Church. Now the question is, is this still true? 
at about, <laughs> I could say about six miles. But he, I, I thought of adding about, but then I thought, no, I'm going to make it harder for you when I was typing this in. Is, is this a true statement? I live seven miles from Scottsdale Bible Church. You think it's true? Okay. Here's, here's the standard. The standard is it should be true according to the degree of accuracy implied by the speaker and understood by the hearer. Okay? And if I tell you I live seven miles from Scottsdale Bible Church, in ordinary conversation, the degree of accuracy expected is, like Gunter said, you expect about, about seven miles. And, and that's true. Now, however, if I'm trying to decide whether my kids go to school A or school B, and they've got to live within seven miles of the school district, then what's going to happen is some official from the school district is going to get one of these fifth wheels out that actually they pull behind and it measures to the hundredth of a mile or something, and, they, and, they, and then they've got to decide, do they measure from my front sidewalk or my front door or what, and they've got all these rules, and then they're going to get, and then they'll find out I'm 7.16 miles, sorry, my kids can't go to school A, they've got to go to school B. So there, in that case, the degree of accuracy implied, when they say 7.16, is more precise and then you have to be truthful according to the degree of accuracy implied by the speaker and understood by the hearers but even 7.16 is an approximation isn't it i suppose if you had some cia gps satellite spy satellite you could put a laser beam down to my front door and a laser beam down to the front door of the administration building of scottsdale bible church and you could go 7.16423 miles. But even that's a round number, a rounded off number, isn't it? Because it could be even more precise. You do the front part of the door or the back part of the door, and what millimeter? You, so all those measurements are approximations. And, and so that comes back to the point, inerrancy, Bible can be inerrant and still speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech, all right? It's still, but it has to be truthful. And if I said, I live nine miles from Scottsdale Bible Church, I don't think that would be true. I'd, I'd be mistaken. And if I said 16 miles, that would be really, really wrong. Okay. Then the Bible can be inerrant and still include loose or free quotations. Still include loose or free quotations. Trying to just think of a conversation I had at coffee this um Oh, okay. A few minutes ago, I asked if you had the handouts from last week. Is that true? But if Trent played back the tape recorder, he might say, oh, Wayne, you didn't say handouts. You said, do you have the outlines from last week? Oh, so am I lying when I say, a few minutes ago, I asked if you had the handouts from last week. I don't think so, because I'm not actually putting in our custom of quotation marks and saying it's the actual words. I'm reporting what we call in English indirect speech. That is, I said that, or I asked if you had the handouts. And so it was a truthful statement, even though it didn't use the exact words. Am, am I making sense? And then the meaning of it was not changed in any way, any, any material way, any significant way. And that's what we have many times in the Gospels, where you have um, 
different gospels reporting the sayings of Jesus and they are in a, what we would call a loose or free quotation. In the ancient world, they didn't have the custom that we have. They didn't have the custom that we have of putting like this. Wayne asked, do you have the outlines from last week. And when we put quote marks around it, in the way we use English today, that tells the reader that I'm reporting the very words. And if I leave anything out, I've got to put dot, dot, dot to show that something's left out. And when I'm quoting a scholarly article, I have to be sure that I quote exactly the words and not leave out a word or not change a word. I can't just give a summary. And that's if I put these quote marks. But those quote marks, that's kind of what you would call a convention, an English language convention, kind of a rule that everybody agrees on today. That has not always been so. And in the ancient manuscripts, the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, they don't have anything like that. They don't have that convention uh, whereby uh, uh, they, when they were quoting speech, they often summarized or gave uh, what we would call a report of indirect speech, which would be Wayne inquired <laughs> whether you had the handouts. Uh, yeah, whether you had the handouts from last week. That'd be a pro that'd be, it wouldn't be the exact words, but it'd be the same force. And so um, in the ancient world, probably maybe because they didn't have tape recorders, I don't know, but they didn't have, um, they didn't have the convention of quoting exactly. And so uh, the accuracy required was we can have loose or free quotations as long as they're truthful, as long as they don't change the meaning of what is said. All right? Questions about that? Yeah, Mike? Yeah. Yeah. It does cover a lot of what is in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where the wording is a little bit different and it looks like it's exactly the same story. Now, what I'm going to do next week is take two or three of the very hardest ones of those, where Jesus said, take sandals, don't take sandals. Take a staff, don't take a staff. Or what day did he curse the fig tree and what day did the disciples see it? Those are really tough ones. And I'm not going to hide those from you. I'm going to say these are the hardest ones I know to resolve. And we're going to look at them and see. But in many cases, yes, it's pretty simple. You can see that either it's, it's just different words that mean the same, essentially the same synonyms, or it is just Matthew quotes part of what Jesus says, and Mark quotes a different part, and Luke quotes a different part. And they can, you can fit them all together. So that's, that's, that's another way it can happen. There isn't anything um, that they just have a little word hati that introduces. He said that, and and it's like we would say an indirect quote. So th 
their standard of precision that they expected was not word for word in quotes of speeches. That's, I guess that's what I'm saying. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. Wayne? Yeah. But... Wayne? I think it's all... Okay, I'm, 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 microphone. Yeah, repeat the question. Mike is saying maybe we've created a problem by putting things in quote marks or, or red letters. <laughs> um, but I don't think we have a choice because if I do indirect speech in English, Wayne asked if you had the handouts. Um, but if I do direct, you can tell the form of the words. But Wayne asked, do you have the handouts? Then you have to put it in quotes in English because it's, um, well, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, when you get Jesus saying I, if you reported that indirect speech, Jesus said that he said to them. So you'd have to change the form of it. But when it takes the I form, you kind of have to put it in quotes in English or you wouldn't make sense of it. So I think we have to do that. We have to put it in quotes. But I just want us to hold those quote marks a little bit loosely in terms of um, we can have looser free quotations. Okay. Now, but you can't do that and say, in one gospel, Jesus said, take sandals. In the other gospel, he said, don't take sandals. That's not a synonym. That's the exact opposite. And so there's, no, there's a problem. Okay. So that's where the problem comes up, not in the, where are the exact words. I'm, all right. Are you saying a paraphrased Bible can be justified? Now there's the see, that's what I was worrying about. That's what I was wondering about. Okay, what forgot your name? Clyde. Clyde, yeah. Clyde's saying, well then can a paraphrased Bible be justified? Now does this you see what I'm saying about loose or free quotations, does that come into conflict with what I said about every word and Jesus quoting the very words of the Old Testament and and there are several places where it just depends the argument depends on one word and I think I mentioned in Matthew 22 when he says the Lord said to my Lord he's basing an argument on one letter of the Hebrew text and so what I'm saying here is this applies to quotations of human speech where people are talking about what somebody said but once it gets written down in the Bible then every word is right. Every letter of every word is right. Once it's written down, then it's God's words. And, it's, and we have to say every bit is true. Okay? Gunter. Oh, look at this. Oh, okay. Gunter is saying it'd be confusing if you handed out more than one thing, but as long as the outline is the only thing I handed out. Yeah, if there were more than one thing and the word I said could apply to different things, then that'd be confusing, but I, I gave a safe example. Okay, well, that's uh, th that, that, that thing right here, I think we have to do that because of what we find in the Gospels, where the wording just varies a little bit, but I don't, but I want to say that's consistent with truthfulness in reporting. It's sort of the standard of accuracy we would expect when we say, he said that, that kind of thing. Number four, it is consistent with inerrancy to have unusual or uncommon grammatical constructions in the Bible. Oh boy, now what does that mean? Um,
this is not a very good example have the um, oh okay here, here's my example Wayne asked do you have the outlines from last week and I misspelled outlines <laughs> I forgot the E Oh, I forgot the question mark, too. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good. All right. Now, is that still a truthful report of what I said, even though I misspelled outlines? Bob, Bob, you're going to accept it. In court, I think it would stand up still. But isn't that an error? How can it be inerrant and have a different spelling of a word? Hmm? It's, it's human error, but if it's God's words, how can it have... Okay, here's the thing. It's conveying truth. And even if you misspell something, it's still true. It's completely true, all right? That's the, that's the question. Now, in our day and age, when we have computers and we have dictionaries and everything, there's kind of a standard spelling for, for most words, right? But in the ancient world, uh, there were some dictionaries, very few people had them, just a few people took to writing them and then got a few copies, but there weren't Xerox machines, there weren't printing presses, there weren't fax machines and all that. And sort of the way words were spelled varied from place to place. In fact, if you go back 100 years in American history, you can find Abraham Lincoln spelling words differently. Okay, but he was a man of his word. He spoke truthfully. And so correct spelling is kind of just a convention that we've grown up with now. and it doesn't have to do with truthfulness. It has, to, it has to do with just trying to spell everything correctly so everybody can understand it. And so you get in the Bible what we call our different spellings of some words. I wouldn't even call them wrong spellings because maybe some areas spell the word one way and some areas, like in England, they spell color, C-O-L-O-U-R. And here we spell it C-O-L-O-R. And so you can have different regional spellings of words and things. And that doesn't affect truthfulness. Uh, and you get Paul, he starts a sentence, and then he breaks it off, and he goes on to another sentence. Have you seen that sometimes in, in, in Ephesians? Um, let me just find that, Ephesians. Ephesians 3.1. Ephesians 3.1 For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and I have a big dash right there. For this reason, I, Paul, there's the subject, where's the verb? There's no verb. It goes on. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery is made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Oh, wait a minute. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and he doesn't finish the sentence. He gets to another thought. Is that an error in the Bible? I don't know if your versions all translate that way, but that's pretty literally what he does. He starts out with I as the subject, and he doesn't give a verb. He goes, it's a broken sentence. 
no, that's not an error. It's just, it's just Paul, it shows that he's, he's, he's saying, I, Paul, and, it, it, and I think he's saying, I'm writing this, and then he, he doesn't even finish the sentence. He knows you get the thought, I'm writing this to you, and then he goes on and talks about something else. So there are unusual or uncommon grammatical constructions, and there are things like, oh, here's one. Um, Jack, who are you going to give that book to? Your son-in-law. Now, any English professors or English teachers in here, there was a grammatical error in that. Jack, who are you going to give that book to? Okay. It should be whom. To whom are you going to give that book? But oh my goodness, not 1% of the population speaks that way anymore. Um, uh, but in a way, I mean, you could say, oh, that's kind of technically an error. But it, it, it really isn't, it isn't, it doesn't make a lot of difference. And in fact, can people who have poor grammar speak truthfully? So you think of a, you know, a murder trial in a small town in northern Minnesota, and then the, 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 the defense attorney brings in this backwoodsman who, as a witness, and, uh, and, he, and the witness says, no, I seen Jack on that morning, and he was having coffee with me. And, and he, ain't done, he ain't done nothing wrong. Well, that's ungrammatical, I seen Jack. But, not you, Jack. <laughs> but the whole town knows that old Ernie out in the backwoods, he's never lied in his life. And the jury believes him, even though he has bad grammar. All right? So again, the issue is truthfulness. And in some cases, say in the book of Revelation, in, in, in Greek you have a gender for nouns, masculine, feminine, neuter. And you're supposed to put a masculine adjective with a masculine noun and a feminine adjective with a feminine noun. It's that way in French, it's that way in Spanish, it's that way in a lot of languages. But in the book of Revelation, sometimes you get a masculine adjective with a feminine noun. Or you get a noun that's usually masculine and it's treated as feminine, or feminine as masculine, it's just grammatical categories. I don't know why. Maybe John was writing in a hurry. It's just there. But it's true. Am, am I, is that? So I'm saying all the things that inerrancy doesn't mean, it means that the statements are true, even though you can have unusual grammar, unusual spelling, that kind of thing. All right? Okay, okay. All right. Gunter is saying there are some verses I can read over and over again and I don't get the meaning. Okay? Uh, incidentally, Gunter, that happened to me last week, too. So <laughs> what does that mean, Lord? I don't know. Okay. Uh, so there are verses like that. And Peter said there are some things in Paul's epistles hard to understand. <laughs> so. Now, was that true in the ancient time? Well, yeah, apparently. There were some things that were harder to understand. Now, sometimes they had more information. Paul says, do you not know when I was with you I told you this? And they kind of knew what he was talking about. So sometimes they had more information. What we try to do is get as close as we can to a native speaker understanding of the language and as much of the background and life situation as we can. Um, 
but to some extent there were they had to think about it for a few minutes too in fact I was um, I was just writing something that's going to be on this focus on the family the booklet uh, the other day and and um, when David's time to die drew near, he did such and such, and he such and such. And then it said, so David slept with his fathers and was buried in Jerusalem. Now, when you read that, David slept with his fathers, it takes you a minute to think, now what does that mean? And was buried in Jerusalem. So what does it mean? He slept with his fathers. It means he died, okay? What's going on with what I would call um, paraphrase or dynamic equivalent translations? They say, that's too hard for you to figure out. So the New Living Translation, for instance, says, so David died and was buried in Jerusalem. That's easy. No problem. The problem is the Hebrew word means sleep, slept, and the Hebrew word means fathers. So why not translate those words? And I bring that back to Gunther's question. I think the first readers, when they read that, so David slept with his fathers and was buried, they had to think for a minute too. Now, what? wait a minute, slept with his fathers? And then they think, oh yeah, that means he died. But it really means more than he died. Slept with his fathers. There's something else hinted at there. Hmm? It, it's hinting at life after death because he slept. When you sleep, what happens? You wake up again. So slept with his fathers has a hint of resurrection. So there's kind of a fuller meaning there. With his fathers, is there any more meaning to that? Hmm? Yeah, yeah, okay, imitating their faith maybe, and what else? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, okay. Doesn't it hint that maybe he's with them? See, and so it is a hint of fellowship in after death. So David slept with his fathers is a pretty rich and full expression, even though the first readers might have had to think about it for a minute. And so there are things like that, too, where we have to think about it. Pammy. Oh, she's asleep, yeah. Yeah, she, okay, okay, good. So Jesus spoke that way. So it ties in with other places where, okay. So, uh, yes, but but anyway, um, where am I? Okay, that, okay, so we talked about what inerrancy was, and yes, there are times. I had a little note to myself in my, um, in my iPad. Wayne, don't try to cover so much. Allow a little more interaction with class. And so that's what I'm doing this morning, incidentally. <laughs> okay. Just trying. All right. Now, here are some current challenges to because I figure if I don't get through the outline, you'll come back next week, maybe. <laughs> okay. Some current challenges to inerrancy. Now, what I'm going to do here is I have a list of six objections that people make. People that don't believe in inerrancy. Some of these people, and and look, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not so much talking about liberals who don't believe the Bible at all. I'm talking about Christians, evangelical Christians, who say, I think this is the word of God, but it's not inerrant. There are some little mistakes in it. And a number of the born-again evangelical believers who are in the academic world in England would fall in this category. Um, some, some my friends, some, some professors at different places. 
And it, the, the dispute over this, I, I don't want to criticize friends here, but because we have an extension of Fuller Seminary here in Phoenix, but the dispute historically honestly focused at Fuller Seminary in the 1960s and 1970s. And so I'm just going to try to report that accurately to you. And there was a question of whether you have to believe in inerrancy to be part of an, of an evangelical church or an evangelical community. Well, here is one, objection number one. People say, well, I believe the Bible is without error in all things having to do with faith and practice. Practice means how you live your life. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal. That's practice, okay? Ethics. So the Bible is only authoritative for faith and practice. This view would hold that the purpose of Scripture is to teach us in areas that concern faith and practice only. So it's possible that the Scripture makes false statements in other areas, such as historical or scientific facts. And this was... This was the view of a number of professors at Fuller, and I, I went there for one year, 1970-71, and they took inerrancy out of the statement of faith in that year. Um, because it, they just there were faculty members that just weren't comfortable with that statement. And one of the objections, and it wasn't just at Fuller, there were some people at other evangelical institutions, but one of their statements was, well, hey, look, um, why did God give the Bible? He gave it to us for faith and practice. We know what we're to believe. We're to believe in the deity of Christ. We're to believe in Christ for salvation through faith alone. We're to believe in the Trinity. We're to believe in the second coming. We're to believe these things about faith and practice, you know, the morals in the Bible. But we don't need to believe that... We don't need to believe that Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah, Oh, what if there were 20,000 men of Judah? So what? How's that going to affect your life? It, you see, I just took that randomly. It's just for faith and practice. And um, maybe there are scientific or historical facts that might be wrong, but that's not the purpose of the Bible. We can find those out ourselves. Sometimes that's referred to as belief in the infallibility of Scripture. It won't lead you astray. It's infallible. Now, how would I answer that? My response is, the Bible doesn't make any restriction on the kinds of subjects to which it speaks truthfully. And you know what? Here I was. I was, how old was I? I was 19 years old. Let's see. No, no, no. That was freshman. I was 22, 23 years old. Uh, first year student at Fuller. And I was being told in my class that it doesn't matter if Gamaliel made some mistakes in what he reported to the Sanhedrin. He got some errors. Or, no, no, it doesn't matter if Luke in Acts 5 got, got some the order of Judas and Thutis wrong, the point is there. It doesn't matter if the mustard seed is really the smallest of seeds. The main point is the kingdom of God is going to grow. And so there are some, and, and it doesn't matter if, 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 if John's gospel, if John the Baptist really didn't say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Early in Jesus' ministry, he couldn't know that because at least he said it at some point. So, I mean, that's the, um, or at least the statement is true that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And I was troubled by that. And I was troubled by professors saying to me, well, the Bible isn't given to that for, for that purpose, to teach us science and to teach us history and to teach us astronomy and to teach us geography. It's given to teach us faith. Okay? And so I went through and I started to look. What does the New Testament itself say about the kinds of things the New Testament will trust back in the Old Testament? And so here, 2 Timothy 3.16, it says... All scripture is breathed out by God 
and profitable for teaching reproof. It isn't just some of it. It isn't just the scripture having to do with faith and practice. It's all of it. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. It isn't just some of the words. It's all the words of the Lord are pure. There isn't any historical or scientific or astronomical or geographical or biological impurity in them. They're all pure. Psalm 119, verse 96, I have seen a limit to all perfection. That, I think that he means that by that human perfection, everything that human beings um, build breaks eventually. Um, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. That is, it's not limited. It's perfect, unlimited perfection. Every word of God proves true about every subject. It doesn't say just some subjects, just faith and practice. In fact, the New Testament has other places where people say they're trusting every bit of the Old Testament. So Paul says, this I confess to you, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything, 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 believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Paul didn't just believe some parts of the Old Testament, he believed all of it. Romans 15:4. whatever was written in former days was written down for our instruction that through, the endurance, through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So it's whatever was written in the scriptures was written down for our instruction. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, I thought this was really interesting. Paul said, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to dance. Now that's not one of your major events in the history of salvation in the whole Bible. <laughs> that's not like David coming to Jerusalem. It's not Abraham sacrificing Isaac. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to dance. And then Paul says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. So he's saying these things happened. And that, that word in Greek means they, they occurred. The people did sit down to eat and drink, and they did rise up to dance. And he just he, then he takes a lesson from that. He just goes back into the Old Testament and takes a lesson. And then Hebrews 11, my goodness, you get many, many detailed events that are affirmed as though they happened. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. What happened? Um, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Verse 4. Enoch was taken up so he should not see death. Verse 5. Abraham obeyed, verse 8, when he was called to go out to a place. Um, verse 11, Sarah received power to conceive. Um, verse 17, Abraham offered up Isaac. Uh, verse 20, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Um, 22, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. I mean, that's kind of a small detail, isn't it? He said, now take my bones and bury them back in the land of Israel. That's a detail. And the book of Hebrews says, by faith we know it was true. And uh, there are other things, the walls of Jericho and um, other things. So uh, I don't think that you get any indication that the New Testament authors look back and say, well, you can only trust the faith and practice parts, but you don't have to trust all the historical details. So, um, And then the, the other problem with this uh, faith and practice objection is it mistakes the major purpose of Scripture for the total purpose of Scripture. The major purpose of Scripture is to teach us about faith and practice. That's true. That's the main point. But that's not all. It also teaches us that God made Pleiades and Orion. That's not one of the major points in the Bible, but it's there. And God decided to say it. 
So I'm obligated to believe it because he said it. Okay? To take an example here, um, you go out of the class and you see a friend out on the sidewalk and they say, well, what, was your, what, what, did, uh, what did Wayne talk about this morning? And you say, he talked about inerrancy. Well, then the person said, oh, good. I, I'm glad because I thought he was I thought somebody said he talked about how far his house was from Scottsdale Bible Church. And so if he talked about inerrancy, I'm sure he didn't talk about how far his house was from Scottsdale Bible Church. What those what your hearer is doing is is taking a summary and using it to contradict something that's being summarized. And that's not right. You say, oh no, he did talk about how far his house was from Scottsdale Bible Church, but it was an illustration. And so here, um, the summary is faith and practice. Yeah, that's a good summary of the Bible, but there are other details in it, and we have to believe those too. All right, that's objection one, faith and practice. We're not going to get through all these, but we'll do see if we do a couple more. Objection two, the term inerrancy is a poor term. I get this in England all the time. Oh, I don't like the word inerrancy. It's too scientific, too precise. It's not in the Bible. Inerrancy is too precise a term. It denotes a kind of absolute scientific precision that we do not want to claim for scripture. And the term isn't used in the Bible. My response to that is, you know what? Scholars who have used the term, have, have used the term inerrancy, have defined it clearly for over 100 years. You can go back and see it in B.B. Warfield in the late 19th century. And they have always allowed for the limitations that attach to speech in ordinary language. That's those things I talked to you about before. So people have defined it. They haven't said it's, it's like laboratory precision with a laser beam or a very uh, high caliber uh, measurement. It's just ordinary language and truthful. And two, we often use non-biblical terms to summarize a biblical teaching. People say, well, the word inerrancy, where's that in the Bible? I say, well, it's not in the Bible. Well, then why do you use it? Well, it's a good summary word because it talks about truthfulness. Uh, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but I believe in the Trinity. The word incarnation, that Jesus became man, that's not in the Bible, but it's a good word to summarize the teaching of the Bible. And so the term inerrancy is the standard widely used term in the discussion regarding biblical authority. And it's not helpful to try to eliminate the term from the discussion at this point. Uh, note the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy and the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy in 1978. This was an organization that was formed to promote inerrancy. And they put inerrancy in their title. And uh, they wrote a statement in 1978 that I'm going to go over with you next week. Uh, or the week after, whenever, and uh, it was kind of a longer definition of inerrancy, and in 1978, they, they put it out, about 250, 260 people. I was a second-year professor at that point, and I was in the conference. I didn't have a major part in it, but I was there, and um, and it's, it's kind of been a useful summary ever since then, and so I don't think we're going to get rid of the word. Number three, how are we doing on time? 9.16, and la the first Sunday I was supposed to get out at 9.15, but otherwise I can go to 9.25, that's what I'm going to try to do here. Let's do this for another few minutes, and then, um, and then we'll just have to stop, and you will all bring your outlines back <laughs> next week, right? Okay. Um, now, people will take my definition of inerrancy or the Chicago statement on inerrancy and they say 
or the Phoenix Seminary statement on inerrancy. Uh, I think maybe Scottsdale Bible Church statement. And they'll say, well, you say it's inerrant in the original manuscripts. Where are those? Show me one. Show me the first copy of Romans that Paul wrote. Where, show me the first copy of Isaiah that, that Isaiah wrote, or first copy. Where are those? And I say, well, we don't have any. Oh, well, what a stupid doctrine you're holding. You say the, in the, the original manuscripts are inerrant, but they're all missing. Not very convenient. <laughs> so that's what this, that's this objection. Um, we have no inerrant manuscripts, therefore talk about an inerrant Bible is misleading. Answer. Well, first, explain. Inerrancy has always been claimed only for the original manuscripts. What's called the autograph? Auto means self. And this is a word related to uh, grapho, the Greek word to write. So it's self-write, autograph. That's uh, the, the, um, the book of Genesis that Moses himself wrote. Okay? Um, and an autograph, we say today, is something where a person wrote his own name. Now, we just confine it to name today, but here, in this sense, it means the autographs mean all the original manuscript. Response. I agree we don't have the original manuscripts. I don't know why. I don't know why God didn't preserve them. Um, somehow they were just lost. And maybe it's good that they are lost, because where would you put them? In the Vatican? No, we wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> In the Billy Graham Center in Wheaton? No, probably not there. Um, headquarters of the National Association of Evangelicals in Washington, D.C.? Well, how about the National Archives? No, that's, get all, well, I don't know where you'd put, and people might kind of travel and make pilgrimages and start to worship them or something. I don't think we want to do that. So I don't know why, but God in his wisdom didn't allow us to keep all the original manuscripts. But, does that matter? For far over 99% of the words of the Bible, we know what the original manuscripts said. Therefore, we can affirm the inerrancy of the words in the manuscripts to the extent that they are the same as the originals. Now, I want to give you an example of that. Let's uh, take the United States Constitution for an example. Now, there was the original, the original copy of the Constitution. Right? And then immediately people made copies of it. And then what happened? They made copies of copies, right? And then they made copies of those copies. Now, now, I hope this never happens, but but what would happen? Do you know where the original copy is? Has anybody ever seen it? It's in the National Archives building in Washington, D.C., right next to the mall in Washington, D.C. What would we do if a terrorist bomb blew up the National Archives and we didn't have the Constitution anymore, the original copy? What would we do? You, you'd have copies. You'd go, you'd get, you know, you get this copy and this copy and this copy and this copy and this copy, and you look at them, and if they all agree, you say, well, I don't have the original, but my goodness, I know what the original said, because the copies all agree. All right? And that's the same way with the Bible. 
We don't have original manuscripts, but we have many, many copies. And for the New Testament, the Greek manuscript, the ancient Greek manuscripts, there are over 5,000 whole or part manuscripts. And you go around and you look, and there's some in the British Museum, there's some in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in the University of Michigan Museum, there's some in the University of Illinois, there's some in Leningrad, there's some in Paris, France, and there's some in uh, the Vatican, and they're in museums all over the world. And you can go right into the British Museum or the British Library, and you can look, and there's a very, very early manuscript of the New Testament. And so you look at them, and there are people who are specialists in that, and they compare them all, and they say 99% of the time they all agree, and with these are the words. But does it worry you about that one-tenth of one percent where they don't agree? See, that's the problem. First, how can you find out where they don't agree? How can you find out? Look at Romans 8.1. Uh oh, <laughs> that's not. Man, we got a good example. Just let me. Uh, oh yeah, Two, just a second. Um, I'm sorry, it's Romans five one. That was the example I was looking for. Romans five one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is there a footnote? We have peace with God. Does anybody have a footnote in your Bible? What does it say? Some ancient manuscripts read, let us have. Okay. Some ancient manuscripts read, let us have. Okay? And the difference in Greek between we have and let us have is echomen versus echomen. Echomen versus echomen. It's just one letter. We have, let us have. Well, what do you do? You go to London and one manuscript says, let us have. You go to Paris and another manuscript says, we have. What do you do? What was the original? What you do is you look at the age of the manuscripts, and you look at how many copies of each kind, and you know wh what would be more likely in terms of copyists make errors, and you decide, and then you put in a footnote to let the readers know honestly that there are some differences here. Does it make a whole lot of difference? It doesn't change any point of doctrine. If I'm preaching on it, I'd probably take a minute and say, hey, you know, we're not quite sure whether Paul wrote, let us have, or we have. If he wrote, let us have, here's what it means. If he wrote, we have, but, here's, but, but it's the same. Okay, it's that kind of thing. A lot of times there's a difference between we and us, which is a little, um, you know, do we have or let us have? But no point of doctrine is affected. Okay? And I just, I just think that the editors are, on, are playing fair with us. In fact, I was part of putting some of those footnotes in. And that's just the state of affairs. That's just the way. Could God have absolutely supervised all the millions of people in the world who ever wanted to write down a copy of the Bible so they would force their hand never to make a mistake? I suppose, but it isn't the way God works. He worked through ordinary people preserving manuscripts. So, that, now, does that trouble you? Oh, I'm, I'm at 925. I just, I hate to... There's a huge difference. However, 
if we affirm that the mistakes in there are mistakes in the copies and there are they're the mistakes of human beings but if there are mistakes in the originals these would be mistakes of God and that's why I think it's important to say the original was without error and for 99 probably 99.9% .9 of the Bible you know what the original said and for the rest we don't miss any point of doctrine on the difference okay and we know where the differences are you can trust it it's truthful it's God's words it's without error now where are we I think this is going to take me two more Sundays I want to finish up some objections and I want to look at some hard cases and I want to look at that Chicago statement so next Sunday we'll continue on inerrancy and and I tell you for 25 30 years I've been looking where people have said hey there's an error here there's an error there and I've looked at them and I've never found one where I'd say yeah that's really an error but you have to sometimes study them and look at them and I want to do some of those with you so it'll be next Sunday and then let's see 9 and 7 16 the 23rd um, I will not be here we'll have a guest teacher because I'm speaking to the Camelback Bible Church men's retreat Tim Savage spoke for us there's a kind of exchange here and then the 30th um, we're going to Raleigh North Carolina where our son Elliot is being ordained as pastor of uh, Christ our comfort Presbyterian Church so so they will be gone for two Sundays and then back in November and we'll finish this up. But next Sunday we'll finish up objections to inerrancy let's pray Lord God we give you thanks thank you for your word how wonderful that you've brought it about that it's preserved so faithfully for us and we can trust it Lord as we're just honest with what is here pray that this would not hinder anyone's faith but actually increase confidence in the Word of God which we have we have nothing to hide Lord as Paul says by the open statement of the truth we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God so go with us this week and uh, especially pray for Jim Lord in that open-heart surgery to be near him and protect him in Jesus name Amen